Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast. We're your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. And today we're taking a look back in time in the first part of a special three-part series, starting with the Birmingham church bombings in 1963. Misasha, where were you on September 11th? On September 11th, 2001, I was sitting in my law school torts class in New York, New York City. So that's amazing that you remember because that was 18 years ago, basically. Yeah. And that moment is something that you can remember. Frozen in time. Frozen. Because I remember getting to school and seeing the first plane hit when I was in the cafe watching a TV and I called my parents because I was like, something's going on, which was good because then we lost all cell power for hours. But yeah, that completely frozen till the day I die. I will remember it. And what about you? Do you remember where you were on 9-11? I do. Actually, I had just landed and gotten home from a trip. I was living in Japan at the time. And I got a phone call saying, something's happening in New York. And my dad worked in New York downtown and my family's from New York. And so I turned on the TV just in time to see the first plane hit, make one phone call that confirmed that my dad actually had called in sick from work and was home and not downtown. And then the rest of it, like up all night watching everything else unfold, feeling so removed yet so connected and fearful and helping family track down other family friends. I mean, it was, yes, I remember exactly where I was. And I think, you know, it's amazing what poignant moments in history like that do to our psyche. Like, as you say, it's frozen in time. You can imagine and feel and you know where you were. And I feel like our parents' generation had something like that in the Kennedy assassination or Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination. And I think that's what's interesting is that there's something that they might not remember in the same way. And what you and I, you know, older generation is there, but like we weren't alive to witness it. But there was this thing called the Birmingham Church bombings. And it killed four young girls just two months before Kennedy's assassination. And I don't know how many people of that generation, I mean, remember it basically in the same way. But that act of terrorism has implications for what we've seen in recent years, you know, Dylan Roof, Charlottesville, the list goes on. It was one of the first acts like this in our country's history. And that's why we want to talk about some of that history today and lead forward into the next series of conversations, because it's so important to understand where we came from to know where we're going. Yes. And, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, you can't see our notes here, but we have the pictures of the four girls who were killed and on our notes. And you look at these faces and suddenly this is very, very real because you have four smiling girls, hair done, school photos, you know, and suddenly gone in a domestic act of terrorism. We'll share that photo. I don't know. Somehow we'll get it out there, maybe on our email list or something. But yeah, it's if you just stop and think about the humanity of this situation, what we're about to talk about, it's worth a deep breath and preparing ourselves. But I think it's so important to learn about Because September 15th, 2019, marked 56 years since the murder of these four girls whose faces we're looking at. This happened at the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. It was this act of terror. I mean, we've called it that. But it was trying to intimidate civil rights activists who used the predominantly African-American church as a rallying point and an organizing hub. And so what did they do? The Ku Klux Klan members planted a bomb under the building's steps. 
It detonated at 10.22 a.m. on Youth Sunday, which was a day dedicated to the church's young members, and these girls were getting ready for the service in a basement lounge. Sarah Collins Rudolph, who was a survivor of the bombing and often called the fifth girl, remembers that day like you and I, we just talked about, might remember 9-11 or the Challenger explosion. So here, listen to what she sort of said. She says, the group of girls arrived at the church late, heading right to the downstairs bathroom to freshen up after a long walk. Rudolph watched her 14-year-old sister, Addie Mae Collins, start to tie the sash on her friend Denise McNair's dress. Both girls were getting ready to sing in the choir that day. I mean, it's a beautiful youth Sunday church service. And then boom, the bomb went off. Carol Robertson and Cynthia Wellesley were two other girls there preparing to be ushers at the service. And that image is burned into Sarah Collins Rudolph's memory. She said she never saw her sister, Addie Mae, finish tying that sash. And blinded by the shattered glass, Rudolph was rescued by a church deacon and hospitalized. And she says now she thinks about it every day. She still sees the scars on her face every time she looks at her reflection in the mirror, and she ended up losing an eye in the bombing. So as we said, four girls, including Denise, Carol, Cynthia, and Addie Mae, were killed by this bomb. All but Denise were 14 years old. Denise was 11. And 20 other people were injured. The only ones to die were children. During his eulogy for the four girls, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. called the attack one of the most vicious and tragic crimes ever perpetuated against humanity. He sent a telegram to the then Alabama governor, George Wallace, telling him, and he was known as like the state's top segregationist, quote, the blood of our little children is on your hands. And here's why. Ten days before the bombing, Wallace had railed against the civil rights movement to the New York Times, saying, what this country needs is a few first-class funerals. Politicians using their words. Does it sound like anybody else you know making offhanded remarks that are taken up as motivation to actually cause harm? So make no mistake, this Birmingham bombing was an act of domestic terrorism. That's it. I mean, when you're using terror to intimidate, to threaten, to try to shut down a movement, the civil rights movement in this case, that you don't believe in through force or violence, that is the definition of terrorism. And when kids are killed, think about your kids. It's perhaps the worst form of it. Right. I think there is nothing worse than kids dying at the hands of terrorists, particularly domestic terrorists. But to understand the impact of Birmingham, it's important to understand some parts of our country's history that led to Birmingham directly or indirectly. And we talked about the history of the KKK in this country and some parts of the Reconstruction South, as well as the impact of the Civil War in previous episodes. But what we haven't really gone into is one of the key defining Supreme Court decisions that laid the foundation for the Civil War itself, as well as the legalized, disparate or unequal treatment of black Americans. And that is the Dred Scott decision. So we're moving from Birmingham. We're going back another 100 plus years. And the case of Dred Scott versus Sanford was one of the most controversial decisions in the Supreme Court's history. At that time, the Supreme Court's majority came from pro-slavery states or had connections to pro-slavery presidents. You know, because of the court's makeup, there are nine justices and how that court splits and how that court leans is very, very key to how the decisions are made. And we're seeing that now in 2019 with a court that is more conservative than liberal. And I think we'll be talking about this later, not this episode, but other episodes about how what the cases that the court is hearing this session are going to be key towards civil rights and social justice issues for pretty much everyone in this country. All right, back to Dred Scott. 
the Dred Scott case had been in the court system for more than a decade. Dred Scott had been born into slavery in 1795, and in subsequent years, he had lived in two parts of the United States that didn't allow slavery, Illinois and Wisconsin, along with his master. When his current master died in 1846, Scott filed suit on behalf of himself and his wife, also a slave, to gain their freedom, which if you think about, that was a huge deal because what slave is filing a suit, right, to try and regain freedom? Not many. The case was heard by three other courts, so those are lower courts, as it made its way to Washington. The Dred Scott decision came just two days after President James Buchanan took office, and it set the tone for his controversial term that led directly to the Civil War. That was on March 6, 1857. Chief Justice Roger Taney gave the court's opinion. It had ruled seven to two against Scott. The chief justice announced that slaves were not citizens of the United States and had no rights to sue in federal courts. And in fact, blacks couldn't be citizens. So let's just pause there because that I just wrote exclamation point times four, basically, because mm-hmm. I mean, that was like, what, 150, 160 years ago. Blacks could not be citizens was the ruling of our Supreme Court. Correct. Right. And the justification that Taney gave was there are two clauses in the Constitution which point directly and specifically to the Negro race as a separate class of persons and show clearly that they were not regarded as a portion of the people or citizens of the government then formed. So he went back to the Constitution or his interpretation of the Constitution to justify this ruling. So this court also declared the Missouri Compromise of 1820 to be unconstitutional, which also said that Congress did not have the authority to prohibit slavery in the territories. So they basically just wiped out sort of all the restrictions about slavery in general, that Congress couldn't say that certain areas could not have slaves. So this decision was celebrated in the South and by slavery supporters, but there was outrage in the North and among abolitionists. And this dramatic ripple effect of Dred Scott, which is a ruling historians widely agree was one of the worst racially based decisions ever handed down by the Supreme Court, reached basically across all the states and all the territories. And not surprisingly, it terrified everyone in the North and the free African-American community, because now technically no black was free of re-enslavement. And free blacks, many of whom had been in northern states for years, once again lived in fear of being hunted down and taken back to the South in servitude. I mean, can you imagine that? Like, you are a free man, yet you know that at any minute someone could just come grab you off the street and be like, yo, you know, we can put you back right back in slavery because you're not actually a citizen. Based solely on the color of your skin. Right, solely. So Southern slave laws and allowed marshals to do this, to travel north in search of escaped slaves. And the ruling was such a concern to free blacks that many seriously considered leaving the United States for Canada or Liberia, which at the time was seen as sort of the free black paradise. One person who was publicly upset with the Dred Scott decision was Abraham Lincoln, who was a rising figure in the newly formed Republican Party. And remember from episode 11, where we talked about how the Republican Party then is not the same thing as a Republican Party now. That was back in our History of Hate episode. That party today would be considered to have a more Democratic-leaning agenda as opposed to the current Republican Party. So the Dred Scott case became a focal point of the famous debates, the Lincoln-Douglas debates, between Lincoln and Stephen Douglas in 1858. And this decision also made the Republican Party a national force and led to the division of what was 
used to be called the Democratic Party during the 1860 presidential elections. This growing power of the Republicans, who received a lot of support from the North, directly led to the fears in the South that slavery would be ended. And those fears snowballed and started the movement towards what became the Civil War. Oh, I didn't realize that. Right? I know. So Scott, Dred Scott, the guy who started this all, died in 1858, about a year after he and his family had gained his freedom. So he died a free man, albeit just shortly after what he had fought so hard for, he actually won, when his owner, under pressure from her husband, sent the Scots back to their original owners who promptly freed them. So wait, wait, wait. So he wasn't freed by the government. He was freed by a white person. Yeah. Who owned him. Yeah. I mean, okay. So that Chief Justice Taney passed away in 1864, and a year later, a request to include a bust of him in a hall that recognized Chief Justices was blocked by Republicans. All right. Yeah, because that was a really bad decision that he wrote. Yeah, they basically, one of the Republicans who was a leading radical Republican at the time, Charles Sumner, said, I declared that the opinion of the chief justice in the case of Dred Scott was more thoroughly abominable than anything of the kind in the history of the courts. Judicial baseness reached its lowest point on that occasion. You know, it's interesting because two thoughts that I had had was one, you know, the fact that Dred Scott gained his freedom from his owner's goodwill, if you will, or like his white owner. I mean, the impact, so many people wait on government or the structure to change in order for things to be set right, but it really speaks to the ability for each one of us to recognize the humanity and believe in our causes and be a just human being in order to impact those around us. And then the other point that I thought about here was that chief justices really can, and in fact do, infuse their personal beliefs into rulings and the interpretation of the law, and then that in turn affects how each one of us lives our life in society. And, you know, you'd like to think that law is the law is the law, but it seems like it's not always the case. It's still like a living, breathing, interpretable thing. And as a side note, I talked about this last night at Book Club, but if anybody has not yet seen RBG, the movie RBG about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I want to make a plug for it. I saw it this summer. I thought it was really interesting to see the respect she has for her fellow justices, her vision and her path to become a Supreme Court justice. And I think it's really worth watching. But sorry for the interruption. Back to you, Sasha. No, I wanted to add that reason why it is so crucial that we pay attention to who our justices are is that is a lifetime appointment. You can't get removed from the court, basically. So how many things in life are lifetime appointments? Very few. And this is a group of nine people who make decisions that become law that controls everything. So on a very basic level, very, very important to watch any justice and what they believe, because one justice because we have an odd number. Right. So if there's a majority that often dictates how rulings go. All right. Going back to 1856 and Charles Sumner, who had made that comment about the Dred Scott decision being the most abominable decision that had ever come through the Supreme Court, he had actually been brutally beaten and almost killed on the Senate floor in 1856 when he personally made anti-slavery remarks. So you can tell this is a super contentious issue. And his he was actually attacked by another representative, Preston Brooks of South Carolina. Can you imagine like basically being beaten and almost killed on the Senate floor? So after the Civil War, so now we're fast forwarding a little bit, the 13th Amendment and the 14th Amendment to the Constitution effectively overturned the Dred Scott decision. Also, 18 years post-Dred Scott, 
Black Americans would not only have citizenship, but would be guaranteed the right to vote and equal access to transportation, housing, and other facilities by the Civil Rights Act of 1875. So you can see that from Dred Scott, which was admittedly a terrible decision, you have the Civil War, then you have a lot of positive change happening for Black Americans. However... That was also short-lived because many of these rights would be lost through the rulings of the U.S. Supreme Court in 1883, when not only the Civil Rights Act of 1875 was found unconstitutional, so that was a big one, and then also again in 1896, when Plessy v. Ferguson established the separate but equal doctrine, which is basically like, we're going to treat whites and blacks separately. You can have separate waiting rooms, you can have separate schools, you can have separate everything, but we're still going to consider you equal. It's just that, you know, separate is sometimes better if you're white and not if you're black. So basically, they rolled back all of the gains that were made right after the Civil War. So that whole rollback and the struggle that ensued from that led us up towards a civil rights movement, which really happened about 100 years later from that point. So now we're back to Birmingham and sort of the the crux of the civil rights movement. So the Klansmen who planted the bomb in the church that day in Birmingham in 1963 wanted to terrorize the black community and their leaders who had used the church as a meeting place, training ground and rallying point for the Birmingham Children's Crusade and other direct actions. At that time, violent attacks on the civil rights movement were common in the city dubbed Bombingham. And in the decades since, researchers have laid bare the lack of political will to convict the perpetrators. At that time, the FBI director was J. Edgar Hoover, and he blocked prosecution of the case. And the FBI failed to turn over thousands of files to prosecutors, including audio surveillance tapes. Unbelievable. Right? Like, this happened in 1963, and it wasn't until 1977 that the first of four Klansmen behind the crime was brought to trial by the state attorney general and convicted. Two others were convicted in the mid-1990s by federal prosecutors. Can you imagine? Like, not a timely justice system there. You basically can live, like, a whole portion of your life totally free, killing kids totally free. Right. And not trying to hide just because you're not being persecuted. And a fourth person died before being charged. The last surviving Klansman still in prison and one of the two convicted in the mid-1990s, Thomas Edwin Blanton, who is 79 as of this recording, has been up for parole twice in 2016 and 2018. Doug Jones is a former U.S. attorney who prosecuted Blanton on the state charge and said that he should not be released since he has never accepted responsibility for the bombing or expressed any remorse for a crime that was aimed at maintaining racial separation at a time Birmingham's public schools were facing a court order to desegregate. Jones says this was, as I said during the trial, an act of terrorism before the word terrorism was part of our everyday lives. The NAACP, as well as families of the four girls and the survivors' families, will continue to advocate against any early release for Blanton, noting, I mean, it took him 38 years to be brought to justice in the first place. Unbelievable. And he is not sorry. Like, so that'll fast forward to our conversations about current hate crimes. But yeah, just not repentant at all. Right. I mean, there have been some good wins that whole trial aside, in 1987, the Southern Poverty Law Center would win an unrelated and unprecedented civil lawsuit against the same Klan group behind the bombing, which was the group the United Klans of America. 
after its members murdered a black teenager in Alabama six years earlier, so in 1981. The $7 million verdict bankrupted the United Klans, finally putting an end to the group whose members had also killed civil rights activist Viola Liuzzo after the Selma to Montgomery march. Didn't we make a comment? I mean, I know in that same History of Hate episode that we talked about, I feel like taxes or finances brought down the KKK. Yes, in one wave. Yeah. And one of the waves. And I so I guess it's money matters. And let's not forget to keep voting with our wallets also. Yeah, especially now that you cannot donate to them on PayPal. That's also a plus. Oh, that we also mentioned that one. Yes, exactly. So the good part about, I guess, if there's one silver lining here, the church bombing did not slow the momentum of the civil rights movement. Instead, that became a seminal moment that galvanized the nation and really pushed the movement forward. Ten months later, after that bombing, Congress passed the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which outlawed segregation and public accommodations. And today, a memorial named Four Spirits stands across the street from the church where the bombing happened with the inscription, A Love That Forgives, which was the title of that pastor's undelivered sermon on the date of the bombing. Because of the bombing, yeah. Right? Chills. So it was Dr. King's eulogy for these girls coming full circle that led us to want to talk about this in the first place. Let us also remember that deadly violence remains an all-too-common response to the ongoing struggle for civil rights in this country. So here's what he said. This afternoon, in a real sense... The four girls have something to say to each of us in their death. They have something to say to every minister of the gospel who has remained silent behind the safe security of stained glass windows. They have something to say to every politician who has fed his constituents with the stale bread of hatred and the spoiled meat of racism. They say to each of us, black and white alike, that we must substitute courage for caution. They say to us that we must be concerned not merely about who murdered them, but about the system, the way of life, the philosophy which produced the murderers. Hate is nothing new. We've known this for centuries, and many of us have experienced it firsthand, but it is on a rise. We are seeing a surge of white nationalism and racist violence across the country. This violence can mix anybody up into the fray. We have to all be thinking about this. Right. And I think we've seen that the fear and resentment of our nation's growing diversity is still at the heart of the hate that is swelling across this country. And we've seen it time and time again in Charlottesville, Virginia, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, in Poway, California, in El Paso, Texas, in Gilroy. And these are all in recent years, some very recent. So next week, we talk about one of the key instances that led into this modern wave of terrorism, which is the Charleston church bombing in 2015, Dylan Roof, and the internet. Stay tuned for part two. And if you like this, start sharing it with your friends so they don't miss the next few episodes. Yes, please rate us, review us if you like this, so that we can continue to produce some great content for you. If you love what you're hearing, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review while you're at it. Also, if you're looking for some great email, who isn't, sign up on our website, dearwhitewomen.com, and get our weekly email every Wednesday that gives you special bonus insider tips. You can also find us on social media. Sarah, can you tell us where to find? Absolutely. On Facebook and Instagram at Dear White Women Podcast and on Twitter at DWW Podcast. Find us there. 